Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing Rebecca. Rebecca was written by Daphne du Maurier and was published in 1938. And the film adaptation that we are discussing this episode was directed by Alfred Hitchcock in 1940. And this is a patron-requested episode, so thank you to Ben for requesting this episode. We're very excited to talk about Rebecca, and we're excited to talk about Hitchcock. This is going to be like a double whammy of like cult classics, basically. I know. Uh, there is a new Netflix adaptation of Rebecca out mm-hmm. that we had kind of briefly thought about doing that one instead, since that's kind of being talked about currently. Um, but we've never gotten to talk about Hitchcock. Yeah. And it kind of seemed, uh, like a missed opportunity if we didn't, you know, take this chance. Yeah. Uh, so we decided to talk about this one, but we will be doing the Netflix adaptation as a bonus episode. Yes. Uh, So all our patrons who support us on Patreon will get access to that bonus episode on the new Rebecca movie starring Army Hammer and, um... Someone else. Yes. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know the actress who stars in it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so uh, find us on Patreon if you want to give that episode a listen to. But this episode, we're solely focusing on on Hitchcock and uh, Du... Du Maurier? Du Maurier, mm-hmm. uh, her book. Yes. And it's probably the oldest movie that we've talked about for sure this movie came out in 1940 and it's also um alfred hitchcock's first hollywood movie before this he made uh, a lot of movies in england and so this was kind of his first uh entry in what would be a very prolific career in hollywood yeah also ironically uh this movie won best picture uh but was the only hitchcock movie to ever do that uh, Hitchcock, like, later in his career was considered, like, he kind of went more to genre thriller. Like, yeah. he leaned more heavily into that. Mm-hmm. That's what's interesting about this movie is, uh, you can definitely see shades of the kind of movies he would later continue to direct and lean more into that. Yeah. Uh, but I think this one was still mainstream enough at the time that, like, he got a lot of awards for it and everything. Although he did not win Best Director. Interesting. Which is noteworthy. Uh, I also just want to talk about the fact that Rebecca itself as a book is kind of a cult classic. And the book has never been out of print. Um, It was kind of a bestseller immediately. And some critics were like, oh, it's like popular now and then it won't be popular later. But it's actually one of those rare popular books that has continued to be popular, even like past its like heyday, basically. Yeah. And it's just this kind of classic story of suspense and tension. Um, And... The other books by um, Daphne du Maurier have also remained popular um, and have done like adaptations like My Cousin Rachel, Jamaica Inn, and also her short story, The Birds. Oh, I didn't realize that was also because Hitchcock Hitchcock also directed uh, Jamaica Inn. Yeah. uh, Before even doing Rebecca. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, Hitchcock apparently was a fan of her work. Yeah. uh, Because he's done a few adaptations of hers. Mm -hmm. So it's just so exciting to be talking about this. So let's get to it. Yeah. So both the uh, book and the film actually begin in the same way, which is with a dream sequence Mm -hmm. by the main character. With the iconic line... Last night I dreamt I went to Man- Manderley again. Manderley, yes. I almost yes. M- messed that up really bad. <laughs> the iconic line. <laughs> that I totally that screwed no up. one could forget. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's a very eerie, um, interesting way to begin. There's kind of, 
you know, this is the only foreshadowing foreshadowing we get uh, in the film. Uh, In the book, we go kind of beyond this um, dream sequence where, you know, she goes to this, she goes to Manderley. It's kind of like overgrown now. It's kind of the shell of what it used to be. Yeah. She just vaguely talks about how it's like not there anymore, kind of, and they Mm -hmm. can never return. Uh, And actually in the book, we then uh, go to the narrator as a grown woman more than uh, she is throughout most of the story. So she really, she's reflecting back yeah, she on the events. Yeah, she seems more middle-aged. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we don't know what's going on. We just know that this narrator is talking about, like, this tragedy that happened or, like, these devils that her and, like, her husband have, like, conquered or, like, left behind. And we know that, like, this couple... Um, are living in some kind of, like, European country, like, at a hotel, basically. And they can never return to England for some mysterious reason. Yeah. I'll be I'll be quite frank. I was very nervous about this book at this early dream yeah. part. Because it's just a lot of description mm-hmm. of the overgrown vegetation. Yeah. The specific <laughs> flowers, the specific plants. Like, very detailed for a lot of pages. And I was just like, oh, no. <laughs> You're like, like, what am I getting myself into? I know. I could tell it was, like, well-written, but immediately I'm like, this is a lot. Uh, <laughs> but, like, it was literally the only time throughout this book that I was, like, actually had that fear or thought in my head. Yeah. And after this kind of, like, almost flash forward in the book, we kind of go back to, like, the present where the story takes place. Yeah. It's hard to just, like, I, we'll, we'll say it's the present. Uh, yeah. Which is the main character is at Monte Carlo at a hotel there and she is the uh paid companion paid companion which is not a sexual thing (laughs) as much as it sounds like it uh the paid companion of an older woman uh who is you know much wealthier and kind of traveling around and staying at this hotel and she's just like her job is to basically be like belittled and made fun of and well mrs van hopper who's the woman she's a companion to just wants to feel superior to someone i think yeah and this is where that paid companion thing comes in um you know she wants someone to travel with her she wants someone to like play card games with her you Mm -hmm. know but not someone that is her equal like someone she can definitely outshine and it's interesting because our narrator doesn't have a name and we never learn her name throughout the course of the book or the movie. Yeah. Yeah. I was surprised the movie, uh, did this as well, but yeah, I think this is a brilliant, uh, a brilliant move by the author that I think ties into so many of the themes we explore throughout the story. Yeah. Um, and the fact, you know, the irony of the book being called Rebecca named after, a woman who is dead and not the main character. And yes. like, it, it's really genius, I think. Oh, it's it's masterful. And I think this no-named narrator, like we know from the beginning, like she is pretty poor. Mm-hmm. Um, she's like 21, so she's very young. Um, her parents have died and she doesn't really have any other family. So she's kind of alone in the world and clearly like needs money if she's willing to be a companion to someone as annoying as Mrs. Van Hopper. I will say that I also appreciated that early on, uh, Miss Van Hopper is a very, uh, kind of absurd character. Yeah. Uh, she has like no self-awareness. She's very obnoxious, but like 
is constantly trying to like sidle up to like important people important people trying to be a socialite but like has no (laughs) realization of how obnoxious she is so the book does introduce like a fair amount of humor early Mm -hmm. on that i liked you know kind of cluing you in that like hey this story like has some lightness and humor to it yeah and then while uh the narrator and mrs van hopper are staying in monte carlo um they see uh this man come in and start to stay at the hotel and mrs van hopper says that this is maxim de winter maxim de winter who is this very rich and very uh important person <laughs> in thought, england i don't know i thought you were about to be like very old <laughs> I mean, he is. So the narrator's 21, and we find out later that Maxim is 42. So he's twice her age. Um, And we find out from Mrs. Van Hopper that he was recently widowed. Yeah. And so the movie actually does a really interesting introduction to him, which is played off something that kind of happens in the book, but like Maxim is kind of standing at a cliff's edge, uh, looking down at the sea. And the narrator uh, sees him and kind of thinks he's going to jump and kind of like yells to him. Yeah. And kind of startles him. And I think we realize that like he probably wasn't going to jump or anything. Um, I think she's a little embarrassed and they kind of like go on their separate ways. Yes. Uh, But clearly he's kind of a man wrestling with some internal demons and maybe some depression and things going on in his life. Yeah. And Mrs. Van Hopper says that, Oh, um, he loved his wife very deeply. She was like a beautiful woman, you know, um, and she recently died and he's like so upset about it. Um, and the narrator is drawn to him immediately. Um, she's like very attracted to him. And the two of them actually start to spend some time together. Mrs. Van Hopper comes down with a very convenient, convenient illness. Uh, illness. Yeah. Uh, which I mean, is very heavily implied that she's just like, playing it up and like isn't really that sick Wants or sick attention. at all yeah so uh so the narrator is constantly like i am getting tennis lessons <laughs> like all day i'm working on my tennis skills you know just evening <laughs> tennis lessons morning <laughs> tennis lessons all hours of the night yeah <laughs> um so she and maxim end up kind of like driving around a lot in his car throughout Monte Carlo and like exploring. And she does some sketching. So like they go to different spots and in the book, they end up going up towards this like cliffside. And this is kind of that scene in the movie where it seems like he is like maybe going to jump or is like going to drive their car off the cliff possibly. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, um, why are you like hanging out with this guy? He seems kind of unstable, but yeah. And there's another scene too, where she's kind of like, why are you being nice to me? And he kind of like gets overly mad about this. He's like, yeah. Oh, well, if you think I'm just being nice, why don't you get out of my car and walk? He's so mean to her. And it's very clear right away that like, she's very young and she's very yeah. not experienced and like sensitive and like, is just like, I expect people to treat me the way that like I am, which is just to be like open and honest with everyone. And unfortunately, that's not the way the world is. And that's not how Maxim is. No, especially not Maxim. Uh, Yeah, so they get to spend a lot of time together. Things are going great. You know, they're uh, even if she isn't like convinced about his affections towards her. Yeah. She's still enjoying their time together. Mm -hmm. But then things come crashing down when Mrs. Van Hopper is suddenly like, uh, we gotta go. Yeah, we're going to New York. Like, we're going across the ocean. And the narrator is panicked because she's like, oh my god, like, I won't get to see him again. Like, I'm in love with him, and I know he doesn't feel that way about me, but, you know, 
I can't bear to be away from him. And she's just like spiraling. And I just want to talk like a little bit about the elaborate fan fantasies that yes. the narrator has yeah. throughout the book. Yeah. So like, <laughs> she just like um, kind of goes into these like, I don't in the book, just these really over extended uh, pages hypo- and pages. hypotheticals yeah to the point where like you're reading it and you're like wait is this actually happening now yeah because she gets so detailed and so in the weeds of it that like at a point you're like i thought this was a fantasy but wait and you're like backtracking yeah and then you're like no it is because like three pages later she like comes back to reality yeah and this is one of those scenes like she imagines how awkward the goodbye will be between them and how he'll kind of like brush her off (laughs) and then she'll be like really like uncomfortable and try to like their connection will be lost and they'll be like you know they'll have to say these like kind of really trite and like boring things to each other like i hope the snapshots come out yeah and like oh we had such a ripping time and then like she also imagines like sending him a card and imagines him reading the card and then like throwing it on his desk and then getting a christmas card in the mail from him like months later and how it'll be like very polite and kind of sad and yeah i don't like i think this is so it gets very funny at points and i think it also just captures how young she is too. Yeah. And at this point in the book, we're still kind of getting her future older perspective somewhat. Yeah. You know, it it eventually kind of fades out completely in the story. But at this point, you know, I remember she at one point was like, I was much more controlled by my emotions at that age. And she says something like, oh, what it was to be 21. Yeah. You know, it's such a specific time and kind of looking back on that. And I really do think the author captures that kind of, how everyone can be sometimes like imagining all these scenarios and getting like caught up in your head and that innocence and that inexperience and just being unsure about how to act and how to behave and, you know, just how interactions, you know, with someone romantically really work. But luckily she like gets the courage to go and tell Maxim that she has to leave. And Maxim is like, Oh, well you don't have to leave because we can just get married. And she's like, what? <laughs> He's like, yeah, let's just fucking tie the knot. Who cares? Let's yeah, do it. Yeah, whatever. And she's just like, it's like in both versions, it's kind of like very off the cuff. Um, but yeah, she's just totally taken aback by this, but agrees to. Yeah. And the way he proposes to her, like, is I think in both versions, he says, like, I'm asking you to marry me, you little fool. <laughs> yeah. Which is like. Thank you. <laughs> he, he he talks down to her in a very weird way on multiple occasions. Yeah, clearly like acting like he's older, wiser, like more of a parental figure to her mm-hmm. than anything. Um, but I just wanted to read a little passage here because I feel like even from the beginning, we know that she kind of has to like tamp down what she feels and what she hopes for to like kind of acquiesce to what he wants. So she is saying in love. He had not said anything yet about being in love. No time, perhaps. It was also hurried at the breakfast table. Marmalade and coffee and that tangerine. No time. The tangerine was very bitter. No, he had not said anything about being in love. Just that we would be married. Short and definite. Very original. Original proposals were much better. More genuine. Not like other people. Not like younger men who talk nonsense, probably. Not meaning half they said. Not like younger men being very incoherent, very passionate, swearing impossibilities. Not like him the first time, asking Rebecca. I must not think of that. 
put it away. A thought forbidden, prompted by demons. Get thee behind me, Satan. I must never think about that. Never, never, never. He loves me. He wants to show me Manderly. And like this being a very like stream of consciousness, like, oh, it's much better that like this is like an original proposal. He didn't say that like he loved me and he didn't say all these like elaborate sweet things. Like yeah. she's trying to convince herself. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it's um I think it's great too because like Maxim being older is also just like it embodies the theme that's so strong in the book of her growing up. Yeah. And so much of this being like Maxim's older and she's kind of trying to like rise to that in so many ways, I think, Mm -hmm. and kind of handle what it means to be to grow into adulthood and things like that. So I think that dynamic works really well in this story, specifically how their relationship works. Yeah. And Mrs. Van Hopper is not happy about this because she's losing her paid companion, but she kind of gives the narrator a little bit of a warning. Um, Like when it's just the two of them alone is kind of like, do you think that you can be Mrs. De Winter? Like, there's, you know, so many responsibilities, like social functions. This is like a level of society and like duties that, you know, you've never had to deal with before. Yeah, yeah. I, I love this scene, specifically in the book, because I think, and it plays out in both versions similarly, but like, I think books sometimes don't um, do this kind of thing as often as movies do. Like this kind of like buildup of expectations and kind of foreshadowing of what's to come. Yeah. It's a really good scene that I think uh, you typically find in movies more than books, but I think works so well in both versions, kind of like establishing what we're to expect in this story. And planting, I think, the seeds of doubt in the narrator as well. And Mrs. Van Hopper kind of parts with like, you know why he's marrying you? He's lonely. Yeah. Like, he can't bear to be alone in that big house by himself, and he just, like, chose at random, basically. Yeah. Something else I wanted to mention here, too, is kind of some of the ways that the film adjusts things um, compared to the book. And some things uh, are, you know, obviously due for time, trying to condense the story. Uh, Other times, I think the uh, movie does some really smart tweaks to give you some of the feelings and convey some of the things in the medium of film that would be harder to convey in how the book does it. Okay. So one of the things, for example, is when he proposes to her in the book, it's over dinner or over breakfast. Breakfast. I'm sorry. (laughs) And so it's like this very like in her head, she's like, Oh my God, this is so weird. And he's like, I know this doesn't seem very like proper romantic, romantic, that kind of thing. Um, But I don't think we'd get that as much in the film. You know what I mean? Yeah. So in the film, what they do is, uh, she's in his room and he's kind of like walking around doing things and he literally yells, do you want to marry me from the bathroom? <laughs> yeah. Which is a great like little tweak where it had, it conveys that idea, I think. That distance. That distance, yeah, exactly. Um, in a really great way that I think works better in film. Yeah. I'm not going to say better than the book necessarily, but for the medium, mm-hmm. uh, I think it does a really good job. Yeah. Similarly... Uh, after they get married, they uh, go to Manderley for the first time together. And in the film, uh, a small tweak they made is that it starts to rain. Yeah. And so, and I was reading about this specifically, that uh, they add, they added this so it's raining. They managed to kind of like run inside. And then kind of by surprise, all of the house staff is there to greet them. Yeah. Which uh, Maxim didn't really want to happen, but it's happening anyway. And this is where... Uh, 
the narrator gets to meet the staff and specifically Mrs. Danvers. Yeah, and she feels really uncomfortable. Yeah, and the scene in the film works really well because she's wet and kind of shivering Mm -hmm. and kind of like looks very uncomfortable and cold. Yeah. Which plays so well with the feeling Mrs. Danvers gives you already. Yes. Um, So this is kind of like small tweaks that were made uh, to the film that I think really work and just kind of heighten the story where it needs to be and kind of convey things a little clearer that uh, without the narration and being in the character's head would be harder to convey, I think. Yeah, no, I think that's totally... Right. And now that you say that, I see how well that it is conveyed, the emotions Mm -hmm. and like the feelings that the narrator might be feeling in those scenes. Um, So, yeah, let's talk about Manderlee and Mrs. Danvers. (laughs) Mrs. Danvers, classic Mrs. Danvers. Uh, (laughs) She is the the housekeeper. Yeah. Or the house. I'm not sure. Kind of like the head of the house, though. She kind of runs everything. She runs the show. And... Maxim is assured the narrator, like, listen, you don't have to do anything you don't want to in terms of running the house. Mrs. Danvers could literally do everything yeah. if you don't want to do anything. And so Mrs. Danvers is kind of this very cold, kind of imposing figure that is very intimidating to the narrator. She's described in the book as like wearing all black with like a skull white face. A skull's face. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Just very creepy. Um, very cold, doesn't really show expression on her face, like kind of the stone cold expression and is very almost immediately kind of scornful and dismissive of the narrator. And the narrator feels this and she keeps thinking like, oh, she doesn't like me or, you know, she thinks that I'm too poor or she thinks I'm not like elegant or, um, you know, I'm not to the level of society that deserves Mr. DeWinter. And she feels pretty distinctly that Mrs. Danvers is comparing her to Rebecca, Maxim's Mm -hmm. first wife. Yeah. And this is kind of, I mean, the feeling she gets kind of from everyone, but Mrs. Danvers is like the embodiment of this feeling, I would say. And the narrator kind of runs into this over and over because the house is just filled with remembrances of Rebecca. And Maxim kind of just like leaves the narrator to just do her own thing at this time, which I don't think is cool because she's literally (laughs) in a totally new house. Like she barely knows Maxim. She knows none of the household staff. And he's kind of like, all right, you just like do your thing. I'll do my thing. Um, You'll be fine, right? Yeah, and I really love this because like you would think and I mean, like, you, I can almost understand where Maxim's coming from. You'd think that, like, a house full of, like, servants and staff and, like, maids and help would be, like, super comfortable. And, like, what, you know, what do you need me for, like, if yeah. anything? Like, you're they fine They can manage with this. everything. Yeah, but, like, because this is a world very different for the narrator, she's immediately very uncomfortable. There's a part, and this plays out very similarly in the movie, but, like, I think the book captures this so well. And for me really endeared me to the narrator because I'm like, I would be the exact same way. Yeah. So after breakfast, she's like, I don't know what to do or where to go. She's like, maybe the library. And we she, were there last night. Yeah. So she walks in and she's like, oh, it's cold in here. Maybe I should light a fire. And then she's like, shit, where are matches? I need matches. She's like, I don't want to ask someone. Yeah. She's like, I'll try to. So she like goes to find some and she, like uh, the servant. Uh, Frith. Frith, like, catches her, like, kind of taking them. Yeah. And she's like, oh, I was going to start a fire in the library. And he's like, oh, we don't usually start a fire in the library until, like, 4.30. Yeah. He's like, there's one going right now in the morning room, though. And she's like, oh, the morning room. 
Great. Yeah. yeah. I'll go there right now. And <laughs> she doesn't want to ask where it is and look foolish. So instead, she decides to kind of like wander around and like Frith is just watching her like walk into the wrong rooms. Yeah. And has to be like, it's that way, madam. Like she's like, oh, of course it's that way. <laughs> and like <laughs> just the discomfort she feels. Yeah. She just. She doesn't feel comfortable with servants. Yeah. It's definitely clear. Like, she doesn't want to trouble them, even though that's, like, kind of what they're there for. Um, And clearly the house has routines, like, oh, the fire is lit in the morning room in the morning, and Mm -hmm. then in the library in the evening that have been in place for a long time, and she's kind of stumbling into them. And the house staff don't want to change their routine because that's how they live their life. Like the routine. And there's a part two in the book where she goes back up to her room and the maids are in there and they're cleaning oh, in the yes, room. Oh, yes, that's right. And she's like, oh, gosh, like, I don't want to be in here now because they're, they're used to coming up at this time. Yeah. And it's just like the whole house already knows how to run and how to function. And she doesn't know where she's supposed to go or what she's supposed to do. And like, theoretically, she can do whatever she wants. But in practicality, like she kind of has to follow this structure. Yeah, and she, you know, kind of coming from a humble background, I don't think ever feels like above the staff or anything. No. In fact, I really like in the book, uh, and in both versions, uh, she gets a, like, a personal um, maid. Mm-hmm. Uh, Clarice, I think. Clarice, yeah. Who kind of comes from also, like, kind of a humble background, you know what I mean? And this is her first job. But she actually, the narrator feels the most comfortable with her because uh, she can relate to her. And she's like, oh, you don't know what's going on. I yeah. don't know what's going on. Yeah, and she feels like, you know, Clarice never served Rebecca. So, like, she's not comparing her to Rebecca. Yeah. And that's, like, such a big part of this is that she feels like the staff is comparing her to Rebecca the whole time. And the morning room when she goes in there is clearly, like, Rebecca's room. She goes to the desk Everything has, like, Rebecca's name on it. In the movie, you can see all these books and papers that have this huge, like, monogrammed R on them. And, like, all the things in the house are clearly, like, arranged by Rebecca. And there's this part where she accidentally breaks this, like, china (laughs) ornament in the morning It's a Cupid. Yeah. And her reaction is to pick up the pieces put them in a drawer, stuff them to the way back <laughs> of the drawer and hope no one will ever find them. And of course, like it st- sparks this whole thing where like Mrs. Danvers thinks the, uh, the one guy Robert stole it because it disappeared. Yeah. And then the narrator has to step forward to be like, oh, no, I broke it and then hid the evidence. Yeah. And it's just like very embarrassing and cringy. And it happens in front of Maxim, too. And so he kind of like tells her like you're acting like a servant basically yeah like just tell people if you do something it's not a problem and it's very embarrassing i was cringing like so hard (laughs) reading about this i was like oh my god this is so painful yeah but once again i think it just captures what living there is like very well and like very relatable in so many ways yeah and i think I would act that way in that situation as well. Yeah, I would just hide this shit and not tell anyone. <laughs> I'd be like, who's going who's gonna to remember this? There's a part later, too, where, like, guests are coming and she literally runs away. <laughs> <laughs> She's just like, gotta go, bye. <laughs> I don't want to talk to this person. And, yeah, she, like, runs to the West Wing. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so let's talk about uh, some of the other people who kind of operate or are related to Manderley. Yeah. Uh, there's Frank, who kind of um, 
does all the day-to-day monotonous tasks of like kind of acting as landlord for all the people who like live on the property yeah uh and kind of just runs the books and does all the boring stuff and he is appropriately kind of a boring person yeah but i kind of like him he's very like kind of stuffy but kind and he clearly sees that um the narrator is uncomfortable in many situations and tries to like rescue her in many ways in like social settings so i like him um and the narrator kind of like quizzes him on like Rebecca, what she was like in her death, because she doesn't feel comfortable asking Maxim about it because she can tell that he doesn't want to talk. Yeah. about Yeah. And so Frank kind of like very not begrudgingly, but like uncomfortably tells her all the details, which is that Rebecca drowned uh, in her boat kind of in the middle of the night. Yeah. Very mysteriously. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, it was kind of a great shock to everyone because she was just like so capable, a capable sailor and just person in general. Yeah. Uh, it was a shock to everyone. And Maxim seemed very shaken. Uh, I think it was like, was it two weeks or two months later that he identified a body? Yeah. Two months, maybe. Yeah. Uh, they got a call from like a town that was like way down the coast, but they had found a body and Maxim drove down there and had to identify it identify it and said it was in fact Rebecca mm-hmm. so it was kind of like a very traumatizing experience for everyone it seemed yeah and Rebecca was obviously a very beautiful and perfect and just kind of like everything everything the, yes. the narrator isn't and the narrator also meets Maxim's sister Beatrice and her husband Giles and it's kind of interesting her conversations with Beatrice and Beatrice kind of just being like, you're not what I expected. You're very different from Rebecca. And like also kind of feeling like hesitant to talk about Rebecca, like Frank was as well. And like Maxim is, um, and just kind of like adding to the narrator's feeling like I don't really belong here and I'll never kind of measure up to Rebecca. Yeah. There's a great line in the movie that I don't remember from the book. Um, and this actually takes place before uh, the narrator grills Frank about yeah. Rebecca's past. But Beatrice says something along the lines of like something about Rebecca and then she goes, but I mean, you know, the whole story, of course. Yeah. And kind of just like highlighting like, wow, she really doesn't know anything. Like she's married to this man. She has no idea about how his first wife died. Because he won't talk to her about it. Yeah. Uh, so that leads her to question Frank about the situation. Mm-hmm. Uh but yeah, and then there's there's Giles, who's Beatrice's husband, who it's just a is fat. It's a fat guy, <laughs> I guess. That's his, they I keep mean, pointing that out. That's his defining quality, according to the book, essentially. Yeah, uh, I want to take like a tiny break and just talk about Manderley as like an estate here. Yes, because it's very vividly vividly described, and I'd say that it is a character in this book. Absolutely, very strongly. Yeah, um, the movie kind of gives us some glimpses of it, but like unfortunately, because of the time, I feel like the sets aren't the best. Uh, you mean the exterior? Yeah, of, yeah, because it's like model work. Yeah, that is good but like it is clearly a model um some shots are better than others uh but yeah you don't and a lot of the interior shots are honestly very grand and do a good job yeah um but ultimately yeah you just don't get quite that authentic feeling yeah and the character grand 
imposing house, like ancient. Yeah. Because it's supposed to have been there for a long time. It's by the ocean, so there's like a seaside view, but then there's these woods and like this long driveway that's like a mile or more. And so no one can see the house from like the roads. It's very like isolated. And there's these beautiful like meadows with flowers and rose gardens. And it's just described in such detail. And interestingly, so Daphne du Maurier um, went to a house that was very similar to this that was like kind of abandoned and shut up. And she actually based all the grounds and exterior and like the connection to the ocean um, on this house called Menabilly in Cornwall. Hmm. And she based kind of the interior on houses that she had grown up in when she was younger because she had never really been in the interior of Menabilly because it was like closed up. Oh, yeah. And then she kind of became obsessed with this house and like would go and walk along the grounds like all the time whenever she was in the area and eventually ended up renting the house from like the ancestral landowner, landowner, totally fixing it up, like modernizing it and living there for like 20 years. Modernizing is in like putting indoor plumbing in it. Yeah, and electricity. <laughs> yeah. But I just find this so fascinating because she actually wrote the book before she began living in the house. So yeah. that's why I think the grounds and the outside are very, very closely associated with Menabilly. Yeah, and kind of like, and I wonder if that created the concept of the book in terms of like when we're introduced to Manderly, it's overgrown and yeah, old and, and kind abandoned. of abandoned and like, I wonder if that, if anything, like sparked the idea of like what happened in this house. What's I think the history? Yeah. yeah, and it's kind of ironic that she then fixed it. It was like the story in reverse or something, you know, her mm-hmm. kind of bringing it back to life. Yeah, and there's this cottage by the ocean um, in the story, and I think in real life too. And the narrator ends up kind of going down there and realizing that this must have been like Rebecca's place to hang out. I love how unsettling. The vibe is here. And there's almost like, I, I don't know, the book does such a good job of kind of like pushing into like horror haunted genre. Yeah. To the point where there's like almost like a jump scare even in the book where like she goes, there's kind of this, um a man who, you know, they say is an idiot. He's like simple minded mm-hmm. um who kind of like is just around the, the cottage in that area frequently. And she kind of talks to him and she's not like afraid of him or anything, but she goes in the cottage uh, to get some rope to tie around uh, the leash of her dog. Yeah. And then the cottage is kind of creepy and like kind of unsettling and weird. And she turns around and then Ben is just standing in the doorway, like watching her. Yeah. And just kind of adding to this vibe that I really love. And the, because he, you know, is possibly, you know, mentally slow he kind of talks in riddles and so it kind of adds this quality of like what is he saying what is he talking about he makes references to rebecca that the narrator doesn't understand so it does add to this kind of unsettled feeling and and to be fair too the book never really tries to make him threatening no which i mean is very common to have someone who has a mental disability and to be like he's dangerous or like is he a killer like who knows but like the book never tries to do that which i appreciate Mm -hmm. it's more just like him suddenly like being there in the doorway and like kind of like the things he says about Rebecca being like mysterious and kind of odd. Yeah. And Maxim is kind of upset that she went to this cottage and was in, in that area and they have like a little bit of an argument. And I feel like this is a good 
time to just talk about their relationship a little bit in more detail. Yeah, what are they doing? What are they up to? (laughs) (laughs) How are they living their, like, perfect marriage life, you know? Um, Not great. And (laughs) it's really interesting the way that the author kind of describes their relationship and how the narrator thinks about it. There's, like, a really great quote um, in the book where she is, like, you know, with... Maxim, and he's kind of talking with some other people, and their dog's name is Jasper. And she says, I listened to them both, leaning against Maxim, Maxim's arm, rubbing my chin on his sleeve. He stroked my hand absently, not thinking, talking to Beatrice. That's what I do to Jasper, I thought. I'm being like Jasper now, leaning against him. He pats me now and then when he remembers, and I'm pleased. I get closer to him for a moment. He likes me in the way I like Jasper. Yeah. Kind of just the way he treats her like a pet. Mm-hmm. Like, she doesn't have his full attention. He has more important things to think about, kind of. Yeah, he talks down to her a lot and kind of, like, clearly likes the fact that she's very young. Like, yeah. he, he constantly makes comments about, like, oh, I wish you, like, never had to grow up. Yeah. That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, It's not as, like problematic as it could be but it still definitely is in a lot of ways yeah and he kind of almost enjoys like laughing at her like teasing her sometimes like yeah i know more than you and you're being dumb mm-hmm. that type of thing which is just kind of not great um there's definitely a huge power imbalance here not just because of the age but because of their social standing because of the wealth and because he's just a man and she's a woman at this time i also wanted to read a quote later Maxim takes a trip to London and the narrator ends up feeling like kind of happy when he's gone. And I just want to read this part where she's thinking about it. I did not want anyone with me, not even Maxim. If Maxim had been there, I should not be lying as I was now, chewing a piece of grass, my eyes shut. I should have been watching him, watching his eyes, his expression, wondering if he liked it, if he was bored, wondering what he was thinking. Now I could relax. None of those things mattered. Maxim was in London. How lovely it was to be alone again. No, I did not mean that. It was disloyal, wicked. It was not what I meant. Maxim was my life and my world. I feel like that just perfectly captures this um, kind of emotional... um, I'm trying to think of the world, the word like she had to manage his emotions for him because Mm. he was so moody and like could get so upset. And anytime like the shadow of of Rebecca was brought up or if she did something that she didn't understand why it made him upset, it would be like kind of a fight or she would feel like separated from him, like he was punishing her. So like she always feels now that she has to be on her guard and like watch his moods basically. Yeah. And the fact that she's like enjoying her time without him, which is fine, but then she's like guilty about it and like being like, Oh no, I should be thinking about him and be with him. And like, yeah, that's not a good dynamic to have with your significant other. No. So yeah, no, that's, Kind of a very telling portion of the story, actually, now that you read it. Yeah. And there's kind of similar parts in the movie as well. Just Maxim getting kind of cold with her and angry and her trying to reconcile, but honestly not knowing what's going on and why. Yeah. There's actually a great scene in the film where kind of this fight unfolds where they're not, you know, uh, they're they're kind of discussing if they're happy or not. You know, he's like, I'm not a good companion to you. 
and she is insisting that, no, you are you're the best. Like, I love you. And it's kind of like very sad because she's clearly like trying so hard. Um, but in the film, they're watching uh, uh, footage of their uh, honeymoon together. Yeah. In this old projector. And so like you get the light of the projector kind of flickering on them. Mm-hmm. And then at one point when things go sour, Maxim stands up and blocks the projector yeah you know kind of like literally blocking like the happy memories Mm -hmm. uh there's just like a lot of good there's a lot of good cinematography and filmmaking in this movie and i mean like i shouldn't be that surprised like it's hitchcock um but like for this being like an earlier film of his and like yeah i imagine like the technological capabilities were more limited at this time but there's still some really great creative uh filming and like metaphor going on and like Mm -hmm. scene blocking and things like that that I think work really well in this movie I agree and just when the narrator is feeling like kind of the most insecure about her relationship with Maxim she also starts feeling a lot more insecure about Rebecca yes uh she ends up going into Rebecca's room and kind of like looking around she's kind of shocked to see that like even though the entire West Wing has been like closed down and kind of shut down Rebecca's room is still like it's perfect yeah and it's been meticulously kept by Mrs. Danvers because Mrs. Danvers comes in and is like oh you want to see the room she's standing right behind her (laughs) (laughs) well and it's such an interesting contrast in both the book and the film where Mrs. Danvers has been so cold so expressionless and finally she's like animated and she's like talking it like with a lot of expression in her voice and she's excited and she's happy to show the narrator all the things that Rebecca had. And she's like, look at her slippers. Look how tiny her feet were. Put your hands in the slippers and feel like how (laughs) tiny her feet were. Here are her brushes. This is like her underwear that she wore. Like it's very, it's very shrine. Like I would say the room is like a shrine to Rebecca. And there's also like hints and it's nothing confirmed. And I don't even know if it's worth like reading this into it, but that Mrs. Danvers maybe had romantic feelings towards Rebecca. Yeah, certainly like a high level of infatuation. Yeah. Um, To the point that like I wouldn't be surprised if that was kind of like confirmed almost by the author. Um, Yeah, I something I loved about this book was like I was kind of never quite sure because like it kind of kept pushing in on all these like horror haunting tropes to the point where like I was never quite sure where it was going to go. Yeah. Like at this point, it felt like Mrs. Danvers was being really nice to her because she like wanted her to become Rebecca. Mm. You know what I mean? I kind of felt like, mm, please join me. Like, won't she like put on her things? Like you could live here, you know, and like yeah. that being kind of creepy. Uh, there's a really great part in the book where like, the narrator's just feeling unsettled and, like, really down. And she hears, like, a floorboard squeak behind her mm. and turns around and, like, no one's there. And, like, that's literally the only indication of, like, any kind of, like, literal ghost yeah. activity. Yeah. It's just that one moment, but it works so well. Mm-hmm. And it was, like, and then there's another great moment, too, where uh, the narrator is sitting down at dinner and she starts thinking about like, what would Rebecca be doing right now? What would Rebecca yeah. be thinking? What would, how would she respond to this thing? And she notices she's going through one of her elaborate fantasies, he- fantasies and she notices Maxim staring at her and Maxim's like, what are you doing? And she's like, what? And he's like, you're sitting there like pantomiming 
like a scene, like you're kind of talking to yourself. Yeah, and, and you have an expression on your face that I've never seen before. Yeah, and like, you're like, oh my God, is she turning into Rebecca? Like, what's gonna... She's being haunted? Yeah, and mm-hmm. like, I literally was never quite sure where the story was gonna go, and I always found that to be very exciting and interesting. Yeah. I also want to highlight the actress who plays Mrs. Danvers in oh, the movie. Yeah. Um, in this scene, and in another scene later, she is so creepy, and is like just so unsettling towards the narrator. Yeah. And I feel like she and the narrator have a lot of great scenes together and they play off each other really well with the narrator played by um, Joan Fontaine. Um, just very like, you know, upset, kind of disturbed, but almost like entranced as well. And then yeah. Mrs. Danvers being like this, like evil kind of presence, just like tempting her and like, making her fear Rebecca's ghost. I love in the scene, Joan Fontaine, like by the end of it is like, she's like weeping mm-hmm. and like kind of trying to hide it. And I love it so much. Cause like she's terrified and like on the surface, she has nothing to really be afraid of. It's no. just like a kind of crazy old woman. Yeah. But like, she's so unsettled and like Mrs. Danvers can see that. But like, and is like feeding off. Of yeah. It. She isn't like letting up at all or mm-hmm. anything like that. And I just think it, oh God, I just, I don't know. I just really, really love this scene and like how it plays out and everything. I agree. And there's like a part shortly after this where they have like another confrontation and the narrator is much more confident and she says, I am Mrs. DeWinter now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like her trying to take back some power after that last scene where she was very powerless with Mrs. Danvers. Yeah. Another really good moment in the film. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about balls. Yes. Let's talk about... A uh, fancy dress costume ball. Uh-huh. So uh, due to enormous public pressure, <laughs> the narrator... Back by popular demand. <laughs> th- then pressures Maxim to have another costumed ball because everyone's like, when are you going to do that thing again? That you also always used to do when Rebecca was here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so they decide to do another fancy costumed ball get-together uh, and this is where another um, crucial, devastating moment happens for our lead character. Yeah. And what do you always say, Ian? Uh, surprises are awful. No one should. Because like uh, at best, a surprise is like, oh, this was like a nice little like thing. little surprise. Yeah. Li- you know, um, at worst, they're horrible and like a total catastrophe. Yes. The payoff versus risk of any surprise is never it's worth, not worth it. it. No. no. And the narrator is like, I know I'm going to make my costume a secret and I'll like surprise Maxim and he won't think of me as like a little girl anymore. And she should have been suspicious right away because Mrs. Danvers is like, oh, you haven't picked out a costume yet. Maybe you should do like this one portrait in like the family gallery of like this ancestor of Maxim de Winter. Like you should, you should do this. I think that would be good. And the narrative is like, yeah, that's actually like a really good idea. Thank you, Mrs. Danvers. And I'm like, why are you not suspicious? (laughs) Why are no red flags going up for you right now? Uh, Yeah. And you know, I, I think, I think you and I probably both knew what was going to happen. I'm sure a lot of readers knew um, what was going to happen. But I think it was still like, I think it's a testament to how well this book is written, that even when you know what's going to happen, it's still like 
really suspenseful and you're really like dreading mm-hmm. what's happening and like looking forward to it though. And I think a lot of that has to do with the narrator's excitement over this costume. Uh, yeah. She's so happy. She feels like super beautiful in this dress and this wig and she's like, oh, won't everyone be so excited and I'll look really nice and I can like do this party because I've been really nervous about it and everything will be great. <laughs> Uh, spoiler alert, everything is not great. (laughs) She comes down in her dress and, uh, discovers shock and horror on the faces of everyone looking at her because this is the exact outfit that Rebecca wore at her last ball. Yeah. And to be fair, only Maxim... Beatrice, Giles, and Frank are there to see it. Yes. No one else has come for the party yet. And But Maxim reacts super angrily and like yells at her and is like, what are you trying to do? And is like screaming at her and is basically like, take it off, like get out. Yeah. And she's horrified and just completely devastated. The evening is like totally ruined for her. It's just really awful. And I feel so bad for her. I know. I felt just awful for her because in the film too, there's another scene where she gets, like, a really nice, like, evening dress. Yeah. And Maxim's just like, oh, that's different for you. <laughs> that's, like, the most she got. Was I know. Like, that's, that's an interesting choice. He hasn't been great towards her outfit choices. Um, <laughs> I just want to mention in the book that, like, with this costume aspect, like, Beatrice and Giles decide to, like, dress like, people from the Middle East, which is, like, very, like, racist and stereotypical. And, like, Giles actually has to, like kind of put on blackface or yes, something. Yeah. It's not great. Uh, thankfully in the film, we were like, uh, like gnawing on our fingers. Like, Oh God, uh, I don't want to have to watch blackface like on the movie. But like, luckily he came as a strong man. Yeah. We're like, Oh, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> After this episode, the narrator realizes that Mrs. Danvers set her up. Yeah. So she decides to confront her. Yeah. In the film, uh, this actually happens like immediately, like it's still the night of the ball. Yeah. Uh, In the novel, she has to go through the entire like evening and it's just like super sad and like lame and a bummer. Mm -hmm. Um, But in the film, it's like more immediate. But she like goes to Mrs. Danvers, who's in Rebecca's room. Of course. And she's like, we're throwing down, bitch. What's happening? Let's do it. What's going on here? (laughs) This is probably the most pivotal scene in the book, I'd say. Yeah, I think so. It's the most emotionally charged, and I feel like it's a culmination of everything that the narrator has been thinking and feeling towards Rebecca and towards Maxim and towards Mandalay. And Mrs. Danvers is kind of like the embodiment of everything that the narrator, like, wishes she could be in the form of Rebecca. Yeah, and so they kind of have this conflict. And this is where Mrs. Danvers is finally very direct about how she feels. Yeah. She just tells uh, the narrator, like, you're nothing like Rebecca. You're, you're you're nothing compared to her. Like, I'm mad at you for replacing her. I'm mad at Maxim for, like, marrying yeah. anyone else. And she has this very, very amazing, I mean, page after page. Of, like, monologue. Of monologue. But one part in particular I wanted to read because it's so good. Um Mrs. Danvers came close to me. She put her face in your mind. It's no use, is it? She said. You'll never get the better of her. She's still mistress here, even if she is dead. She's the real Mrs. DeWinter, not you. It's you that's the shadow and the ghost. It's you that's forgotten and not wanted and pushed aside. Well, why don't you leave Manderley to her? Why don't you go? 
it's you that's the shadow and the ghost. Yes. Ugh. I love that. So good. And it perfectly captures what she's been feeling. And then she actually is like, you should just kill yourself. Like, let's open the window, jump out. And the narrator is like considering it. Yeah. She's like, maybe oh, I should God. jump. Like, Maxim doesn't love me. He was so angry with me, like at the ball. Like, it's not worth it. Like, I should just kill myself. Yeah. And it's just gr- like M- Mrs. Danvers, like, just tempting her. Yeah. Like, acting almost like sweetly about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's this really heightened scene. And I love that the way that it's interrupted in the book is the same way they kept that for the film. Yeah. Where suddenly there's this like deafening bang, uh, and it's because a ship has run aground um, in the sea close to them and was like signaling um, yeah. with like cannon fire that it was in distress. Mm-hmm. But it's this like kind of deafening bang, and it jolts them out of the situation, which is like so crazy what they were like doing. Yeah, and what the narrator almost like was tempted to do by Mrs. Danvers. And it's it doesn't just jolt the narrator out of this. It kind of jolts Mrs. Danvers out of it too. Yeah, because especially in the book she's suddenly like very kind, like step away from the window. Like don't like watch your hands as yeah. she like closes the window. And they'll probably need to bring food out to the sailors. We need to like arrange that. She's she, all business now. Yeah, she suddenly snaps back into like not the deranged woman that we just saw moments ago. Mm-hmm. And this ship kind of uh, in distress and sinking leads to like some divers kind of going to see what the problem is. And when this happens, it actually leads to this, the discovery of Rebecca's boat. And everyone thought that the boat was kind of lost at sea. They never found it. Um, and then they see it's just in the bottom of this kind of cove. And the diver goes down and sees that there's a body in there. And I love the initial mystery of this. It's like she was with someone else that night. Yeah. Like, what's going on? Who is that? Uh, And, you know, so this immediately starts to, like, people start talking about it. And the narrator finds Maxim. And I really love in the movie this scene takes place in the cottage. Yeah. I think it was a really smart choice. Once again, one of those adjustments that I think in terms of, like, uh, the visuals of it worked really well. Kind of this like drab, creepy cottage that mm-hmm. is kind of like where Rebecca spent a lot of time. Yeah. Setting the scene here worked really well. Yeah. And the narrator is like confused and Maxim seems really upset. And then basically Maxim confesses to her and he's like, listen, the body in there, it's not someone she was with. It's Rebecca's body. And she's like, well, how could that be Rebecca's body? Like, you identified the body, Rebecca's body. Like, Yeah. And I, he's like, that that wasn't Rebecca. And I knew it wasn't her. And I knew it wasn't her because I knew she was in the boat because I shot and killed her. And, and put her in the boat. And put her in the boat and sunk the boat on purpose. Yeah. That's how the chapter ends. I love that, like, ending on that. Oh, uh, yeah. And then this is where we get Maxim's, like, entire confession about everything. Yeah. And we find out the truth about Rebecca mm-hmm. and what she was really like. Yeah, and Rebecca, when he, she and Maxim got married, she kind of reveals to him shortly after they get married that she does not intend to be faithful to him. Yeah. And also that she may be like a sociopath or something. It's very vague because this is a book written in like the 30s. So when they talk about, when Maxim talks about like, she told me everything that she was and all of like her dirty secrets. And I was disgusted and I won't repeat it to you. And I'm like, can you repeat it though? Because like we don't (laughs) actually know what you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah. um, 
and like so she basically is like with like a lot of dudes and is like I'm gonna keep doing this and like you can either tell people that our marriage is a sham and divorce me and make it public and it's like this terrible thing or you let me be the lady at Manderley I promise to make it the most beautiful estate like manage your house pretend with you and I'll live my secret life yeah and due to like the public pressure that like the Maxim kind of like not imagines Mm -hmm. but can anticipate he agrees to this and I really like this because like it's the same kind of um imagined pressure that the narrator has been dealing with this whole story yeah like she's constantly thinking what will people think yeah people who constantly compare me to Rebecca are they talking about me yeah and like to see that Maxim also dealt with this I I liked that comparison at least Mm -hmm. and we don't really know how long they were married but probably for some time and he talks about how she had this like apartment in London where she had these friends that she would meet up with to have sex, maybe, or maybe they were just drinking and doing drugs. We don't really know, like, what level we're at here because, again, they don't really go into detail in either the book or the movie. But we do know that she had, like, multiple affairs and that she tried to seduce both Frank and Giles. Yeah. And, like, as a game. Yeah. You know? For fun. And, and Maxim talked about this, like, she started getting sloppy. Mm-hmm. You know, like, he's like, I agreed that she could do what she wanted to in London, but she started bringing it. And affecting the people close to me uh, at Manderley. And shattering the illusion that they had carefully built around Manderley. And this all comes to a head one night, and Maxim kind of goes to confront her because he knows, like, she's there with a lover. Yeah. But he gets there and finds it's just her alone. And she confesses to him that she's pregnant. Mm-hmm. And she's going to raise... She's she's cuckolding him, and she's gonna raise. He's gonna have to raise this child at Manderley. This, gonna, chi- this child will inherit the estate. Yeah, and he's gonna have to raise him and call him his own. And like, it's kind of like almost as crazed like I've won. Like this yeah. kind of feeling to the you know what she's saying. Uh, and Maxim, uh, you know, thought ahead. You know, <laughs> when he came down to the cabin because he brought a gun and he. I don't know. According to him, like, kind of loses it or goes into a fugue state in the book and shoots her. Yeah. Like, just straight through the heart. Straight through the heart, and she's dead. Um, should we talk about how the movie diverts from this? Yes. In the film, everything is consistent, you know, a little more vague, maybe, about yeah. what was wrong with her, mm-hmm. um, but pretty consistent. Up until the point when he loses his temper and he just strikes her. Yeah. And then she falls over conveniently and hits her head on some boating. Well, so she he hits her, but then she seems fine and she walks toward him. Mm. So, like, the hit didn't cause her to fall. She walks toward him her, to herself, oh. stumbles on something, trips, so, and falls. You don't think the hit was connected with her falling? No. Oh, okay. Because, see, I I interpreted it as, like, he hit her and she was, like, dazed. Mm -hmm. And maybe she was walking towards him, but then she, like, lost her balance. Maybe, yeah. That could have been it, yeah. Um, But it's weird. And so she hits her head and then dies. And the narrator is very quick to be like, 
it was an accident then. Like, you didn't mean to kill her. You didn't actually kill her. Yeah, she's like, you didn't kill her. Yeah. Uh, And this is interesting for a number of reasons. Um, But most significantly, significantly, I would say, is that um, a big part of this is most likely due to the Hayes Code um, at the time that this film was made in Hollywood. Uh, And that's what I wanted to talk about here is the Hayes Code. For anyone who doesn't know, the Hayes Code was a series of guidelines, not laws, but guidelines put in place by production companies that limited what films could depict. Yeah. So this includes like nudity, like sex, um, obviously anything homosexual. Yeah. But also things that were like very moral. Mm -hmm. So the movies couldn't really have you sympathize too much with criminals. And criminals also needed to be punished for what they did. They couldn't get away with a crime. Yes. And the history of the Hayes Code is like really interesting. We're going to link to some articles and some reading about it in uh, on our Patreon page. Um, but essentially it was like uh, there were general guidelines that Hollywood agreed to up into the 20s just because they didn't have full autonomy yet to be able to do what they wanted to. Yeah. Uh, They could be struck down by the government if they chose to, Mm -hmm. and they didn't want to risk that. So they agreed to general guidelines. But then um, when the Great Depression hit and films started taking a dive in ticket sales, they got more graphic with things. Mm -hmm. They started depicting, you know, more sex. Racy. Yeah, yeah, racier uh, content. Well, that angered uh, the Catholic Church. Mm Mm-hmm. Or not specifically yet, but certain people, including um, Will Hayes, who was the Postmaster General. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) He was really trying to, you know, step it up. Yeah. Uh, And so he kind of made it more of an issue, specifically with Catholics. He was like, oh, like Hollywood's full of filth and like teaching all of our children like terrible morals. And he like got people up in arms about this uh, to the point that... Um, Catholics, the Catholic Church got involved and were like, we're going to say what you can see and what you can't see. And Catholics were like, yeah, sure. (laughs) And so Hollywood was like, okay, we need to like work with them on this. We need to set up guidelines that we know aren't going to cause the Catholic Church to denounce the movies we create. Mm -hmm. And that's when these guidelines came into place. Um, And so in this specific instance, the whole... um, criminals have to be punished for their crimes kind of puts the adaptation in a tricky spot. Yeah. If it has Maxim straight up murdering his wife is going to have to reconcile that. Yeah. With the character Mm -hmm. or he could conveniently have like not killed her. Exactly. Yeah. It seems like he could have, but basically, and I think that's what led to this kind of like, weird set of circumstances where he was like kind of responsible for her death, but not totally. Yeah. Uh, And that's all due to the Hayes Code. So that's like your little bit of um, cinema history. Yeah. At least in the United States. Yeah. This, these laws were kind of like thrown away. What in like the seventies, more like Uh, late late sixties. Yeah. Yeah. They kind Uh, of like tapered off. Like, they started getting lax on them. They're like, okay, you can depict, like, drug use, I suppose. Yeah. And then um, change out the Hayes Code for uh, the rating system that we have now. Yeah. Films being rated G, PG, R. Um, and X was supposed to be 
like the highest mm-hmm. um, rating. And actually, a movie, Midnight Cowboy, won Best Picture like two years after these were in place. Mm-hmm. It was rated X. Hmm. Uh, so people were very quickly willing to be like, I'm f- like, fuck. We're fine with this. Yeah, this yeah. is fine. <laughs> and then two years after it won, they changed that rating to R. That was the, like kind of the last mainstream movie to be rated X. Interesting. Before they kind of just did away with the rating. Yeah. So I, I do think that this kind of waters down Maxim's like backstory, like yes. with having him not actually be killing Rebecca. Um, but it's kind of weird because this is the moment where he turns to the narrator and is like, I've loved you this whole time. I've never loved Rebecca. I hated Rebecca. And kind of like shows her the love that she's always wanted from him in this moment, which is very all kinds of fucked up. It's twisted. Yeah. And the narrator feels like happy that he never loved Rebecca. She's like, oh, it doesn't matter that he killed Rebecca because like he never loved her. That means he loves me. It's very, very messed up. It was a very weird turn of events. And I, I, I couldn't quite tell how I was supposed to feel about it. You know what I mean? Like, or how the narrator maybe wanted the reader to feel like. Yeah. Maybe, uh, God, Dumar, what, what, how do you pronounce her name? Dumarier. Dumarier. Maybe she wanted you to feel conflicted about it. I more felt like this was just supposed to be like totally chill mm. and like fine. I think she wanted you to feel conflicted. I, I, I guess you're just so in the head of the narrator who's totally happy with it yeah that it's like it becomes hard to like question it too much mm-hmm. um but yeah is a very i was very surprised by how chill the narrator was yeah this leads to like an inquest an official inquest into um rebecca's death because they find her body um and so this is sort of like it's not really a trial but they're bringing up evidence they're kind of hearing like what might have happened and trying to re-examine exactly what's going on and this is definitely kind of like the most boring part of the book and movie i'll say yeah the narrator just literally takes a back seat yeah. to everything that's going on it's just her being nervous yes <laughs> very nervous about everything the whole time because she's worried that people will find out that maxim murdered rebecca and now that she has maxim's love and is like assured in it she doesn't want to lose him and like a lot of things happen like they kind of figure out that like it couldn't have been an accident like it had to be deliberate um yeah the boat sinking and so they're like well was it suicide um and it's sort of interesting how the book and the movie differ a little bit in the book the official inquest like comes to a like decision and says it was suicide. And in the movie, they're like kind of deliberating and the proceedings are interrupted. Um, but either way, we kind of get some new evidence thrown in by Mr. F- Mr. Jack Favell, who was Rebecca's cousin and lover. Fun fact, in many places, it is legal to marry your first cousin. Still? I, yeah. Yeah. Very weird. <laughs> um, yeah, it's kind of funny because, like, he just gets very bold about it, like, especially as these things go on. He's like, yeah, I was fucking my cousin. So what? Yeah. I'm not going to hide it. Why would I hide that? But he basically thinks that Maxim murdered her, which is true. Yes, he's correct. (laughs) He's like right on the money. Yeah. And so it's like also really weird because like Jack is played off in so many ways as being kind of like shitty. Yeah. Kind of snake-like. Gross. Gross, like a drunk. 
But he's right? Yeah, and he wants justice for his cousin. Yeah, who still did not deserve to, to be, be murdered. Killed. No. Yeah. And, like, regardless in the film, whether Maxim was, like, directly responsible for killing her, he still hid her body. Yeah, that's very suspicious. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this was just a really weird portion. Yeah. Um, I was definitely the least. Because, like, it kind of abandons the whole... Suspense. The suspense, the theme of, like, Rebecca haunting the narrator. Yeah. And her feeling, like... And the narrator suddenly feels, like, much more emboldened. Like, she's described as being older now. Confident. Confident from, like, the horror of discovering she's married to a murderer, I guess, will, like, add years to you. (laughs) Kind of weird mixed messages, though. And I don't know. I just felt like the narrator had literally zero, like, power in what was going on. Yeah, I agree. And we finally have, like, kind of a conclusion to this portion where... They end up retracing Rebecca's steps on the day that she died and find out she went to a doctor. And we think that this is going to reveal the pregnancy that she told Maxim about. Which, like, they're convinced that, like, oh, if they find out she was pregnant, they'll know Maxim killed her. Which, I mean, would certainly add suspicion to him. Yeah. Like, that wouldn't confirm anything. Mm -hmm. So I, I wasn't totally, like, convinced that, like, the stakes of this... I mean, I think the reveal of the affair already kind mm-hmm. of and then a pregnancy would add like the doubt of like whether it was Maxim's child and so that could lend like you know weight yeah. to like a murder but I mean like even if you have like motive that doesn't like give you evidence and like prove that like oh, someone yeah. killed so like I don't know they kind of made it seem like if one is discovered she was pregnant it'll be an open and shut case mm-hmm. I was kind of like will it though yeah um but they go to this doctor And it's interesting, in the book, uh, the narrator goes along, too. But in the movie, they don't even have her go. No, she's not even there, which is weird. Which just highlights how, like, unnecessary she is to this part of the plot. I agree. She doesn't even have to be there. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it is discovered that she wasn't pregnant. She was actually, she had cancer and was dying. Yeah, and only had a few months to live. And then this is, like, this weird conclusion that both the book and the movie draws, which is Maxim being like, she wanted me to kill her. She was trying to goad me into killing her because she didn't want to die this like slow and painful cancer death. And that's why she was smiling like a crazy person when I shot her. And I'm like, nobody is like, yeah, kill me. Nobody like forces you to kill someone. <laughs> like you killed her, man. Well, like, I know, well, and it's even sillier in the film because he's like, oh my God, she wanted me to kill her. I mean, too I, bad she tripped and killed herself anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I didn't kill her. She wanted me to, but I didn't and I wouldn't, but she wanted it anyway. Yeah. It's, it kind of gets silly. And it's like, I think that highlights the fact that like this was changed from the source material. Yeah, it doesn't quite make sense in the movie. No. But um, after this is finished, it seems like everything's going to be fine. But then Maxim is just, like, very concerned suddenly. And in the book, when the narrator is with him, he's like, we need to get back to Manjali, like, right away. Let's go. Yeah. And so despite how much I disliked uh, this kind of later portion of the book and how boring I thought it was and, like, losing all the themes that it spent so much time building, Mm -hmm. I really loved the way it ended. Yeah. Just in, like, the last, like, five pages or so. Because they're traveling back to Manderley because Maxim has a, a bad feeling. 
and the narrator's in the car sleeping and she keeps having like these kind of disturbing dreams. Yeah. She's dreaming of Rebecca. She's dreaming of Manderly. She's dreaming of herself as Rebecca again, mm-hmm. uh, kind of tying back into those themes. And there's just kind of this unsettling quality. And then they're approaching Manderly and they start to notice like, is that the dawn breaking? But like, what time is it? Well, no, that's the West. Like, that doesn't yeah. make any sense. And I think they come to a stop on the road. And I think the last line is like the ash was carried on the sea breeze towards them. Yeah. And like it ends there. And we know Manderley was kind of destroyed. And so therefore, like you understand it is on fire. Yeah. But that's how it ends. And it just leaves you with that image of these two people in a car, like looking in the distance and knowing that their house is on fire. And I think it's so unsettling. It's so great. It's yeah. like, honestly, kind of the perfect way to end the story. It is. Um, There's no happy ending for them, even though they escaped this, like, murder charge. Yeah. The movie um, is more explicit. Like, we travel to Manderley. We see it in flames. We see it on fire. Um, and then we see Mrs. Danvers in the house. Apparently, she set the fire. Um, and we see her get crushed by a bunch of, like... <laughs> Falling rubble, so. I thought this, like, shot was really good, kind of circling the bedroom as she's trapped in there. And the effect of the burning... Oh, it was good. ...timbers falling was, like, really excellent. And once again, the the movie made it clear that she set the fire. Yeah. And therefore, she had to be punished. Yes. Uh, So she had to die, basically. But I like in the book, it's not certain that Mrs. Danvers set the fire. Yeah, there's like a mention that she left the house earlier in that day. Um, So we have no idea what happens. Like, it could have been Mrs. Danvers coming back. It could have been an accident. Mm -hmm. Um, Or it could be Rebecca's ghost. I love that. The idea that it could have just been like Rebecca's ghost, like, enraged at them getting away with what they did. Yeah. Of her being killed Mm -hmm. or something like that. I don't know. I like that unsettling quality yeah before we finish talking about the book and film i just want to mention the author and talk a little bit about more about her and um we're i'm going to post some articles on patreon um for everyone to see that a lot of people think that um daphne du maurier was um either a lesbian or possibly trans mm-hmm. um or bisexual and it's hard to know because at the time, like these words, some of these words didn't exist. And obviously it wasn't super acceptable to be any of those things. Um, but there's a lot written about her and the relationship she may have had with women. Also her refusal to identify with the word lesbian, like really not wanting that label put on her. And also like when she was younger, really identifying as a boy and later in life talking about how she felt like she had two parts of her, one that was like the dutiful wife and mother and the other that was like a masculine spirit that represented like her true self. Yeah. Um, so again, like it's really difficult to put labels on people who didn't exist in the same time as we do now that have the same understanding of like fluid sexuality and gender. But I think it's really interesting to bring this up because in many ways, this is a queer story. We have those hints of like Mrs. Danvers' obsession with Rebecca 
We have the narrator's own obsession with Rebecca. Yeah, she's like more passionate about Rebecca. Yeah. For better or worse than she is about Maxim. Yeah. And we also have kind of this dark look at heterosexual relationships. Yeah. And like kind of the expectations of marriage and like what that means and how unequal those partnerships could be. So I think it's really interesting to talk about that and to talk about Dumarier with that con context in mind um yeah yeah and it's also worth mentioning too in kind of an interesting parallel that um hitchcock's own sexuality was kind of like uncertain i mean i know there's a lot written about hitchcock and i i certainly don't know a ton but from what i've read um he said he personally was basically celibate. Yeah. Uh, He said that he had, so he was married and had a daughter, but he basically said he only had sex like literally the one time (laughs) with the woman who um, edited and cut his films and that that resulted in the pregnancy and birth of his daughter. Mm -hmm. Um, But that like basically in his life, he, he was celibate. He didn't, you know, never had sex. And although, but there are accounts that like he was he had a fascination with blonde women yeah, and specifically and was like reported to have been like indecent to them, like on sets. Uh, he, he wasn't the best towards uh, Joan Fontaine yeah. on the set of this film. He kind of like psychologically abused her, told her that like the cast and crew didn't like her kind of to make her shy. Like the character. Wow. <laughs> it's amazing how, much directors don't trust actors to be able to act. I know. It's the same with Kubrick. Yeah. And like these other big directors who are like, mm, instead of just men. trusting you men <laughs> to be able to like act the part, I'm going to like psychologically torture you <laughs> instead. Uh, it's it's a weird, it's a weird thing. But yeah, so Hitchcock and, and Hitchcock was known to have dressed in drag too. Mm-hmm. So his own relationship towards like sexuality um, and possibly even gender was kind of like uncertain too. Yeah. So I find that interesting that he was adapting these stories by an author that similarly we didn't know a lot about in that way. Yeah. So which one's better? I will say that despite liking the movie a lot, um, there was a lot about this movie that I really enjoyed. Um, you know, and it was cool watching a Hitchcock movie, cool watching an older movie. Uh, I, I'm definitely going to go with book on this one. Same. The book just was, I don't know, kind of like, almost like hypnotized you. Yeah. And how it put you in the author's perspective, or the, the, the narrator's perspective. I really loved its use of kind of like metaphor of her growing, um, you know, into adulthood. And this comparison of Rebecca as kind of this like ideal feminine um person yeah but then the fact that like Rebecca was like probably a sociopath and kind of like what that says about like is the ideal feminine you know personality like literally like impossible would you have to be like a sociopath almost to Mm -hmm. be able to like live up to that ideal um I don't know the book just had a lot of interesting things to say with that stuff. I also think it used the genre of like gothic horror and like haunting ghost stories like really effectively. Um, It was honestly only at the end that I got like suddenly bored and felt like it dropped a lot of uh, its themes and what it was doing well, but it made up for it in the last five pages. So 
Yeah, I found this story very gripping. And despite being written in like the 30s and being like 400-ish pages, like it really goes quick. Like you're very engaged. Um, and it's just a very exciting and suspenseful story. I love the theme. So I'm definitely going to have to go with the book as well. Yeah. Book for both of us. Now, I just want to read uh, Ben's thoughts on Rebecca since Ben requested this episode. So Ben had a, a few points to say about this um, he says the unnamed narrator is a very good choice because it obviously obviously puts you in the shoes of the person. Therefore, you you are the second wife, and it's written with almost stream of consciousness, so you feel like you're reading an old diary. Rebecca to me feels almost like what men expected from sexy, overly confident women. They end up dead because they were too confident. <laughs> However, the fact that the unnamed narrator is comparing herself to Rebecca is still true, as many. Um, people today compare themselves with like con- confident women and he kind of made the comparison to like social influencers yeah I liked that that mm-hmm. idea and then says the fact that Rebecca is largely unseen also makes it interesting I believe that Rebecca was Maxim's wife but I also believe the Rebecca character traits were also either um, the narrator's sister or mother um, another reason why she could be so opposite to Rebecca and then Maxim seems on the outside like your typical manly man, but in reality, he isn't. One of the reasons why I believe he married his second wife is because with Rebecca, he questioned his masculinity and therefore himself. So his second wife gave his masculinity a boost. I feel like that's such a great um, analysis of Maxim's character that uh, Rebecca kind of emasculated him and was more powerful than him in their marriage. And so he chose someone that was way less powerful than him for his second wife. Yeah, you know, first read through, I was kind of like, oh, he likes uh, the narrator because Rebecca was so um, manipulative and lied and the narrator's very honest and genuine, which I mean is still a totally valid interpretation. But I also think what Ben said is very possible and likely, too, that it was like he felt dominated by Rebecca. Yeah. And he wanted someone who would be more submissive and yielding to him, which the narrator absolutely is. I mean, he... Is like, I killed someone, and she's like, oh my god. That's fine, honey. As long as you love me, <laughs> that's all that matters. So I really love that interpretation. Yeah. Thank you again for requesting, Ben, for requesting this episode. Let's do lightning round. Let's do lightning. So something that I, I wanted to, to mention earlier, but I just didn't find a place for it. But, like, I think it's funny that, like, in these older type types of films, characters will talk and deliver lines so quickly yeah and it just like kind of started to crack me up because i'm like this is like listening to a podcast at like 1.5 speed sometimes (laughs) like the how rapidly like uh laurence olivier will like deliver lines like he sounds like an auctioneer or something (laughs) like just it's so quickly it's so quick and rapid i don't know it just cracked me up uh next for lightning round i want to mention that um daphne du actually faced like some lawsuits and some allegations that she plagiarized um her work based on other stories um one came up in relation to her book and then another one came up when the movie came out Mm -hmm. and so it was sort of brought against the movie as well um these allegations were kind of dismissed and nothing really came of them really um but it's also interesting to point out that there are a lot of similarities to jane eyre in this story as well so anyone who's read jane eyre will notice uh, a lot of similarities in this story and i just think that it is kind of a common story uh that idea of like the second wife and this like gothic tale um but 
there is the possibility that she did plagiarize it. So we're not throwing that out completely. Yeah, I'm of the mind that like, I don't know, like similarities are one thing, but like to say like plagiarizing, like it pretty much has to be like a carbon copy yeah. in my mind. But yeah. next for Lightning Round, there's a shot that I really wanted to mention that I really loved in the film, which is when they're in the, uh, the, the cottage by the sea and Maxim is describing the night of what happened. Mm-hmm. We get a shot of like the couch because he describes like she was laying there, but it's just the empty couch. Yeah. And then he describes how she like got up and the camera moves up and how she approached him and the camera starts moving. Like the Mm, camera is like tracking her. Yeah. Someone that like isn't there. Yeah. And I just thought it was like a really cool, creative way to shoot that scene Mm -hmm. um, that I like really appreciated. And there's other moments in this film that I thought were like also really effective and how they were um, created that I really liked. Yeah. Um, Closing out lightning round. I just want to mention the book talks so much about the food that they eat all the time at Manderley and like they're super rich. So like they talk about how breakfast they have like bacon and eggs and like toast and jam and like Uh. oh so many things like just available for them to eat. And then at tea they bring out like scones and cakes angel cake and, and like you know fruit cakes and all of these things and um and like they never eat any of it like the narrator and maxim are always like i'll just have a piece of toast thanks <laughs> and it's like and the narrator herself is like i wonder what happens to all this food like do they throw it away do the servants eat it do they give it to like some of the people that have lodgings in this like estate um and we never find out we never find out what happens I think the same thing when we watch like like we watched Emma, the yeah. Jane Austen movie, and like there's constantly like sweets and things around. Yeah, and no one eats it. I'm like, what happens to this? <laughs> it looks so good. I know, it's making me very hungry. I know. <laughs> um, that's it for Lightning Round. Thank you uh, again to Ben for recommending this episode, and thanks to everyone else who uh, has listened to this. We yeah. will be doing... Uh, a bonus episode on the Netflix adaptation that just came out recently. So if you'd like to listen to that, you can become a patron. Um, Check us out over on Patreon. We really appreciate everyone who supports us over there. It means so much to us. Patrons get um, requested episodes. We do those um, pretty often. They get all of our bonus episodes and they get access to um, some other bonus content over there. So check it out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Covered Credits. You can find us on Instagram, on Facebook. We have a new website, just yes. CoveredCredits.com, uh, where you can listen to episodes there and uh, find links to all of our social media. That's probably the easiest place to go to is just CoveredCredits.com. Yeah. Uh, and thanks to everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.